Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, "The Spider and the Fly" by Don Mark Lemon. This is first published in the Thrill Book for August first, nineteen nineteen. I'm uh, increasingly thrilled about the prospect of the Thrill Book because um, we have quite a few of their its short-lived issues, uh, its short-lived run. Um, not all, and not in the greatest of scanning condition. But like the Black Cat, I see it as kind of a precursor to weird tales, and that means a lot of experimental weird stories. Uh, Francis Stevens was published in the Thrill Book before it closed, and uh, in fact, we know of a lost Francis Stevens story because it was announced in the final issue of uh, of the Thrill Book. And I'm like, oh man, if I could get my hands on that story, I'd be famous. <laughs> Maybe not rich, but right. famous. Um, I also feel an increasing um, affection for uh, Don Mark Lemon. You may recall, long, long time ago, I found a story by him, I think it was in The Black Cat, um, called The Palace of... I don't remember what it's called, but basically it was about a, a purple ray that makes you forget your memories, uh, and then you can... Uh, start your life again and people go there when they've lost their love uh and they don't wish to mourn anymore than when they've lost their uh wid- they've widowed or whatever and i just thought it was a great inventive story and he used a lot of um tricks from edgar Allan poe and homages to poe in that and this is uh equally sort of cute and funny and it's short enough to read um, would you read it for us, and then maybe we can talk I, I more will, about but I, I, Mark but Lemon? I, I, I want to undo that, that or resist that word cute, just so that we don't set up people hearing the story improperly. That story, as I recall, um, it, it's a clever device mm-hmm. uh, that the story hinges on, but thematically, the question was, I think the story raises the question, okay, you could remove the memories and therefore the object that causes you grief but is that worth it to lose the memories of the object in other words I think the story had something quite serious as an exploration of of a a human psychological condition I say that because I think that uh, although the title of this story, The Spider and the Fly, obviously reminds us of a nursery rhyme. I don't think that one should think of this as childish. Oh, yes, it's not childish. Um, it, But uh, we'll, we'll talk about what I mean by cute at the end, I think. Um, the story was <laughs> okay. called uh, The Mansion of Forgetfulness, and it was first published in The Black Cat, April 1907. So uh, almost a decade, oh, more than a decade, uh, 12 years earlier. Okay. The Spider and the Fly by Don Mark Lemon. A slight scream came from the adjoining room, and Robert Neal dropped the book that he was reading and hurried through the doorway. He found his wife with her eyes fixed in alarm upon her left hand, which she held out at some distance from her body. Oh, she gasped, I've been bitten. Bitten, Julia? By what? A dreadful black spider. Neal took his 
wife's hand in his and looked at it. There was a slight angry spot upon the palm. He kissed the hand gently, then placed his arm about his wife. Come, let's put it in hot water to scatter the inflammation, and you will be all right in five minutes. But, dear, it was such a horrid big black spider, said the wife after her injured hand had been held a while in hot water, then wrapped with a soft strip of linen. Nonsense, Julia. Only a common house spider. Anyway, dear, maintained the wife, it wasn't a common spider's, for just before it bit me, I heard it singing on the wall. Singing? Yes, singing. Nonsense, sweetheart. But, dearie, it was singing or making a kind of singing noise. At first, I thought that it had caught a fly in its web and the singing was caused by the fly beating its wings. But I soon found that there was no fly in the web and it was the spider that was making the strange singing noise. Then the horrid thing leaped on my hand and bit me. Robert Neal took the injured hand in his own and covered the bandage with kisses. And either the kisses or his laughing assurance satisfied his wife, for she returned to her household duties and soon had forgotten the incident of the spider's bite. But Neil searched along the wall of the room until he found a large black spider sitting in the heart of its web, singing. He dispatched the creature, making a purple spot on the wall, which he partially erased with his handkerchief. He then burned the handkerchief. A week passed, and husband and wife had forgotten about the spider bite when the incident was suddenly recalled to Robert Neal upon hearing his wife singing. It was a foreign song, yet that was no reason why the peculiar whistling singing note of the black spider should again and again repeat itself in the voice of the sweet singer in the adjoining room. Neil called himself a fool for his fancies, yet a moment later he entered his wife's chamber and begged her to sing him an English song. He didn't like the air that she had been performing. It failed to do justice to her voice. The young wife complied, and stooping to kiss her hair, Neil discovered a large black spider crouching in the brilliant jet folds. Shudderingly, but without informing his wife of the fact, he managed to knock the hairy creature to the floor and tread upon it. Then he went about the house from room to room and press to press, hunting for spiders, large black spiders that sat in the heart of their webs and sang. But he found none, at least not for a week. Then a black spider appeared suddenly on the carpet and leaped along and ran up the dress of his wife, lodging itself in her dark hair. His wife was seated at the piano, singing. Robert Neal understood it was the note that had come into his wife's voice, that peculiar whistling singing note that had attracted the spider to her person, to the black, hairy creature. His wife was one of its own kind. The next morning, coming softly into the parlor, Neil found his wife seated by the window with her ear bent over a handkerchief that lay upon a small music rack. She was intently listening to something. What could it be? He approached unobserved and looked over her shoulder. There was a fly trapped beneath the handkerchief, and his wife was listening to the buzzing of its wings. Robert Neal was a brave man. But as he crept from the room and stole away across the fields, his knees shook under him like those of a sick child. When he returned to his home, an hour later, he found his wife seated on the porch with a book in her lap and her face greatly animated. 
He looked into the sweet eyes that greeted him and called himself a fool and a coward. Heaven had not condemned this fair young spirit to any such horrible doom as he feared. He kissed the lifted face and without looking into the folds of the heavy jet hair for something black and hideous, sat down beside his wife. Then she began to jest at him. Dearie, she said, I wish you were fat. I like fat men. Why, Julia, you are growing quite material. No, dearie, but I do wish you were fatter. Do you remember Harry Hall? Neil did. And now he recalled how his wife had once compared the man to a big bottle fly. The recollection brought him to his feet. Flies and spiders? Why, dearie, what's the matter? Are you ill? The man resumed his seat and, bracing himself in his chair, attempted to smile. "'Twas nothing, Julia. I thought I heard someone at the gate." Julia Neal looked toward the gate and wondered that her husband should have fancied that someone was coming. Then, after a moment's brooding, she rose and placed her arm about her husband. "'Dearie, I want something.' "'Well, Julia, what is it?' "'You won't laugh?' <laughs> "'Laugh? Nonsense.' "'Well, dearie, I want a hammock.' A hammock? Yes, a hammock. Very well. Anything else? No, that's all. The next morning, Neil returned from the village with a large hammock, which he swung on the porch in the cool shade of the trellised morning glories that climbed the house wall. An hour later, he discovered that the hammock was gone. He immediately questioned the two servants, but they protested that they had not taken his purchase. He then thought to question his wife, but why should she have removed the hammock? No, some tramp had stolen it. He soon returned from the village with a second hammock, which he also swung on the porch. Then he concealed himself behind the summer house and watched. In a few minutes, his wife came out upon the porch and, discovering the second hammock, untied the ropes and took it into the house. Neil waited a little while, then hastened indoors. Whistling boisterously, he went from room to room, searching, but he could not find the hammock. Neither could he find his wife. He stooped. He stopped whistling and reflected. The attic. Ah, his wife had gone up there. He would go up and help her hang the thing. He went to the head of the stairs but found the attic door locked. He listened. Someone was moving about within the attic room, busily engaged and singing. His wife was hanging up the hammock, the two hammocks. Ah, she was going to have a hammock party up there in the attic. And when everything was ready, she would send out invitations. Oh, God, sobbed the man. And turning, he went down the stairs, out of the house, and into the wide fields. It was night when he returned. The servants had left a lighted lamp in the sitting room and gone off to the village. He blew out the light and sat down in the dark, waiting for his wife to come to him. Suddenly, a sound reached his ears from somewhere above, a strange half-singing, half-whistling sound that momentarily grew louder. He tried to rise from his chair, but failed. Again, he tried to rise, and this time succeeded. He took a step forward in the dark and, not falling, took another. Then he rushed headlong through the doorway, up the attic flight of stairs, and burst into the attic room. It was pitch dark up there. And he could see nothing and hear nothing now, for his sudden entry had disturbed the occupant of the room. He stood very still and listened. Suddenly the weird singing was resumed. 
very softly at first, but growing louder and more distinct, seemed to charm him and leave him powerless to move. Another sound now reached his ear, the sound of something running softly about him that wound his rigid form in a thousand strands of some material substance, which, as it bound him closer and closer, adhered to his hands and clothing as if covered with glue. His eyes had grown more accustomed to the dark, and as this last sound ceased, the white blur about him resolved itself into a network of many glue-covered cords that bound him rigid and helpless while crouching in a hammock swung in a far corner of the attic was a thing with two luminous eyes set in a woman's face that watched him and waited and now drew nearer and nearer noiseless as a spider that approaches a fly caught fast in its web <laughs> say uh, after the podcast eric uh, would you uh, be open to coming to a hammock party in my attic <laughs> <laughs> not in your attic but you know that is that the the, the protagonist here i mean you know robert neal he clearly rationalizes and justifies so much that when he said, oh, it must be a hammock party. I thought, well, he certainly made that up, but you know what? I went online, and there is such a thing as a hammock party. <laughs> really? What's it about? It really is. Now, I don't know if it goes back to 1919, but there are certainly hammock parties. And there's even I found even found a guide for the etiquette for hammock parties. Oh, my God. They, it must be they from all that seem period. To happen out, but they all seem to happen outdoors. Whereas spiders do tend to make webs up in the the uh, the joists at the top of the inside of attics, so you know we get what's going on. It's it's cute to think about a ha- like a hammock party, like just a, a regular party. You imagine people walking around holding drinks. Uh, maybe it's in a usually it's not a garden party. Otherwise, you would call it a garden party, right? So we imagine it's in, in some sitting room or drawing room or library or hall or whatever. And people are mingling and socializing. In a hammock, uh, a hammock party, presumably there's a bunch of hammocks, and then people sort of lie around. <laughs> or they just hang out. Yeah, hanging out in the, in the, between the trees, right? Um, exactly. So um, what makes this story so cute, in my view, cute as in um, it makes me laugh and makes me see that I think I would get along really well with Don Mark Lemon. Um, is that uh, we can see it coming. <laughs> we can see it coming. And he doesn't shy away and say, no, it was all my imagination. No, <laughs> this is a Spider-Woman story, which I am a big fan of, the weird little genre. We've done uh, other Spider-Woman mm-hmm. stories um, where women, uh, sometimes Spanish women, sometimes Russian women, uh, foreign women, or but usually they have dark hair. Um, <laughs> are spider women. Um, and uh, his wife is turned into one. Uh, it doesn't say the spider is radioactive. Uh, <laughs> however, she's literally turned into a spider by being bitten, presumably, uh, is the cause. Um, he, he squishes it and it makes a purple mark on the spot on the wall. And if you remember that mansion of forgetfulness, uh, purple was the color of the ray there which mm. i thought was interesting and at the time you would see advertised in the back of magazines um vital rays and all sorts of uv rays and uh there was uh, even violet rays and 
so there is something to the purple color, I think, being sort of a signal. Because uh, that's not normally what we see of, you know, if you squished a spider, I don't think purple would be the color you would think it would be. Um, but he actually but- squishes three of them. And then she she traps a uh, a spider under a handkerchief. No, a fly. Uh, oh, you're right. Uh, a fly under a handkerchief. And then I started noticing um, he wraps her hands in linen, or her bitten hand in linen. Um, she, she says, I wish you were fat. Um, he thinks she's joking. <laughs> and then he says, you are qu- becoming quite material, <laughs> which I thought is fun. And then he gets wrapped in material. There's a lot of weaving metaphors going on in this. Like, just... Indeed. It's cute. It's it's like, it's neatly put together. It's, you know, three pages long. And uh, I love every every bit of it, Eric. Well, I'm glad. Um, I I liked it too, but I, I, I like it more and more on each rereading. Yes, it, it, because it, you notice the resonances, like um, the the trellis, which is where I assume the morning glories are climbing. Um, that's uh, sort of a, a weaving pattern, right? Um, mm-hmm. The uh, the the fact that he. He runs away. <laughs> I love that the narrator tells us um, Robert Neal was a brave man, but as he crept from the room and stole away across the fields, his knees shook under him like those of a sick child. And then uh, on, the, on the next page, um, it was night when he, he returned. <laughs> That's because, oh God, sobbed the man turning. He went down the stairs and out of the house and into the wide fields. He runs off from his wife twice. And he's like, no, no, it's all in your head. (laughs) I think this is, uh, I don't know uh, what Mr., I assume Mr., uh, Don Mark, I just don't know what Mr. Lemon had in mind. But I find this to be a gentle, Mm -hmm. but absolutely forceful you know like the steel fist and the velvet glove uh-huh. um, this is an absolutely forceful feminist story it's very interesting to see like this the setting right it, it they are uh wealthy they have two servants they have a summer house they don't seem to have jobs she's young i presume he's uh youngish is this their summer vacation I don't think so. I think that they're wealthy, and I want to hear more about this uh, f- this feminist reading because it is definitely uh, a woman-dominated household now. <laughs> well, I, I wonder if it hasn't been, and that may be a message of the story, maybe households are always women-dominated and men don't realize it. Um, the story opens with Robert sitting and reading. Mm-hmm. His wife screams. He runs in. When he's done attending to her and wrapping her uh, wound in uh, in linen, he says that she should return to her household duties. So reading backwards, we recognize that just before the scream, she has been doing something domestic, necessary to the maintenance of the household, well, he has just been losing himself in his book. Mm. Later, after she's been bitten, she's the one who's sitting and reading after he comes in from the That's fields. Right. 
So reading is associated with luxury, Mm -hmm. with self-indulgence. And men are the ones who have it while women toil. But by the end of the story, the woman is the one who can do it while the men have become food. (laughs) Um, Right. So the man has clearly lied to himself. Yes. Right. He keeps he thinks he's brave. Right. He runs away and apparently does nothing. He's just gone. And then comes back an hour later. What do you do? When he goes out and doesn't come back until late, the second time he's in the fields, there's a contrast between being in the house, which is the woman's domain, and the, and being out in the fields, mm. the, the, the wider world. But the man in the wider world accomplishes nothing. Whereas the woman in the house is not only able to have power there, but she's able to instruct the man. He brings her the hammock that she wants. I, by the way, think of these as uh, uh, as reticulated hammocks, um, like rather nets, than right. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Um, which would work perfectly. Um, her hair is jet black, mm-hmm. right? as black as that of a spider. He purposefully doesn't look there on the second mm-hmm. uh, approach, right? If he's really trying to protect his wife, he should be looking there. But he doesn't. In fact, he goes out into the wide world, but she's the one who has that foreign singing. Mm -hmm. So she is more powerful in every way, and he doesn't realize it. When he finds the first spider, he hears it singing. He sees that it's no ordinary household spider. And when he goes back and talks to her, he does not at all acknowledge his, his error he poo-poos what she says. Mm. Oh, you're wrong. It's a common spider. No, it couldn't have been singing. When he has absolute proof that he himself is wrong, he says not a word about it to his wife. This gives us a portrait of a bourgeois family in which the wife is perhaps directing servants. Maybe mm-hmm. those are her domestic duties. Mm-hmm. But the man is doing nothing. The man thinks that he's in charge. But in fact, the woman is in charge, and she's in charge because she has been able to bind him with the very things that she has bringing him bringing into the house. It's a very subtle way of suggesting that the woman really has rules from the beginning. You know, when I think of reaching out my hand to something, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I'm looking down at my hand as we speak, Jesse, and if a spider were to leap at me, I don't know. I have been bitten by spiders on the ankles, on the hand, never on my palm. Why would I be approaching the spider with my palm? Mm. I would be approaching it with my fingertips and it would leap up. It would land on my the back of my hand. I wonder if she was not, in fact, a spider all along. <laughs> right? Because the spider, Robert thinks... <laughs> imagines that they are of the same kind. It's not clear to me that she's of the same kind after she's bitten by the spider. It may well be that she was, whatever that spider is, it's a metonym for the real power of a bourgeois female. 
And this story, it seems to me, lets us see that. All of these resonances and all of these reversals. He reads the book. She reads the book. Mm -hmm. She goes up into the attic, not the basement. She goes up into the attic, which is, as Gaston Bachelin uh, tells us in the phenomenology of space, uh, sorry, the poetics of space, that phenomenologically, the attic represents the brain, the intellect, mm. as opposed to the emotions and the bowels in the in the in the basement, in the standard genre stories of fantasy, science fiction, fairy tale, and so on, we have a whole series of symbolic dichotomies. One of those standard dichotomies is that between the head and the heart, and when that maps in the most usual way, the man is the head. And he is the one who gives the orders and the authority to organize and and determine how things are to happen. And the woman is the heart. Men are intellect. Women are emotion. But in this story, she's in the attic. And she understands correctly what the spider is doing. And he thinks he knows. Right. It's just a common spider. It couldn't be singing. But in fact, He's petrified. <laughs> He's quaking. His knees are buckling. He's running out. He's trying to get as far away from the influence of this woman as possible. And when he comes back and realizes that she needs him, from his viewpoint, he does nothing to help her. He's the heart. She's the head. He's the bowels. She's the, uh, he, she is, he is the body. She is the mind. And as the body, he gets eaten. Mm. This story is absolutely gorgeous in its play and reversal of with standard dichotomies this spider and fly yep the fly's the guy the spider's the gal and that's what happens in the bourgeois world don mark lemon is saying um women get us to marry them mm-hmm. i'm a guy i'm speaking now they get us to marry them and then we are, they become the old ball and chain, mm. and we are trapped by them forever. This is a very male chauvinist view of the real power of femininity. It's funny, it's funny. Um, I, I, was, I, I, I think this story is, is so cute and fun because if you imagine this is like the beginning of a, a bigger thing, like it isn't just him getting eaten, but... You know, maybe these spiders are, they're aliens or whatever. Like, it's just ridiculous (laughs) to imagine, like, what premise that this is is positing outside of this story. If you try to make it any bigger, it becomes ridiculous, right? It just becomes even, (laughs) it it becomes not what it is, which is so delightful. Um, But the, what you're saying about the domestic space and the attic and the basement, um, it reminds me that uh, when he brings the first hammock home, he hangs it. He doesn't, like, offer it to his wife. He hangs it up in the place where he thinks is most appropriate, which is on the porch, in the shade, but not inside the house. When it disappears, he's like, where'd the, where'd the hammock go? He thinks maybe a tramp had stolen it. A tramp <laughs> is a guy who had no wife, or if he did, he ran away from her and now chooses to live outdoors. And if you're going to have a hammock party, <laughs> the normal place to have it is outdoors where the living is easy, right? Um, especially yep. in this warm summer uh, that we seem to be having. 
Um, I think I think there's there's is it kind of a lesson in that he runs away twice, right? <laughs> he literally runs away from the house twice, and now he says, "No, no, no, I have to live there." <laughs> my wife acting strangely—that's normal. Uh, it's my imagination. And what does he get for his uh, telling himself these lies? <laughs> he gets eaten. Um, Indeed. <laughs> and that's why it well, is you know, a comedy, is, right? It's so funny. Unlike, uh, unlike Odysseus, he didn't have his ears stopped. Well, he, he, he did get entranced by the singing, didn't he? That's exactly right. Hers is a siren song. We have seen this relationship in the past where the man you know, is lured to his death by this, the singing woman. But in this particular instance, this is not simply a critique of male and female roles. It, I think, says a lot about, about the bourgeois life. As you point out, the tramp, who is economically lower class, we don't think of a tramp as a, uh, <clears throat> as a wealthy man who is just perpetually traveling, right? I mean, we right. think of somebody without money, who has less domesticity, less domestic resources available than the servants. Mm-hmm. He would steal the hammock and could get away with it because he's not lured by the siren song of domesticity. He hangs up the second hammock in the same spot and then watches, thinking, uh, it doesn't say this in the story, but uh, thinking, I'll catch the tramp. And then, of course, it's his wife who comes down and says, oh, another hammock. And she promptly takes it down and takes it inside. And then he investigates her like she's not his wife, right? Like, what mystery is this? And he goes up to the attic and is, oh, it's locked. She must be having a hammock party in there. She wants to surprise me with it. Um, when he eventually gets in, uh, yeah, he's surprised, but he shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. I kind of wonder also with those those bands going around him, a thousand bands capturing him. Mm. Um, am I? Is it just coincidental that I'm thinking of Gulliver in the among the Lilliputians that? The small and apparently powerless I turn out. I didn't in fact, think of that. To be able to bind them. I didn't think of that because it is a. It, it is. I was thinking about the glue. <laughs> they they stake oh, yeah. him to the ground, and when he wakes up, he's he is uh, a captured thing, right? Um, and they they do want to know what to do with him, but their first instinct isn't to start carving him up and eating him. Right? <laughs> That's true. That's Whereas true. with this, um, like, she she's acting out the role of a spider. Um, it's all instinctual. Her singing, I think, is instinctual. He asks her to sing not a foreign tune, and I thought that was interesting, but rather a nice domestic one, right? Well, you know, you say that she, it's that she, it's in, if it's instinctual, I want to return again to the question of etiology. Um, yes, we could say that that she's become this because of the spider bite. Mm. But I can't help but wonder if she wasn't like this all along, and at most the spider bite <laughs> released it. And one of the reasons that I say that is when she says to her husband, I wish that you were fatter. Yep. She refers to a man, this is sometime in the past, Mm -hmm. her husband remembers that she had referred to him as a bottle fly. Mm -hmm. That's before she's been bitten. That's right. 
So she's got something in her that is brought out by the spider. I don't think that she was just what he expected her to be. Yeah. And then became it. The the, the, the more you think about this as like a, uh, a Marvel superhero origin story, the less it makes sense and the less fun this story is in a certain sense because it is so much about the psychological and seeing these readings of, you know, what's going on in his mind and not seeing what's going on in her mind, but only seeing her actions. It's very interesting. That that's in fact why um, I didn't want people to be predisposed to thinking of this as cute because going into it, one might not give it the, the depth of reading that it deserves because when one does give it that one finds There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.